Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome back to the Heredity Podcast. We'll be making a monthly show from now on, so find us on iTunes or the Heredity website at the end of each month. This month we're taking a look at tropical breeding systems. Genetic diversity, as you'll know, is thought to be very important for the well-being of a population, and one mechanism for keeping a healthy mix is spreading your genes far and wide. For plants, rooted as they are in one position, pollen and seed dispersal is the best option. Some plants choose to send their genetic parcels on the wind, but in tropical rainforests, sometimes you're best off using the local, well, birds and bees. Jordan Karubian from the Tulane University in New Orleans and his team have been studying one such insect-pollinated plant, a large canopy palm species from a tropical rainforest in northwest Ecuador. They first found and genotyped every single tree that could have been sending out its pollen across a large study area. This is made a lot easier by the fact that this particular palm is fairly easy to spot. Enocarpus batua has leaves of up to 18 metres in length, about the size of a school bus. By then sequencing the germinated seeds from maternal trees, they were able to work out how far the paternal contribution, aka the pollen, had travelled, shedding light on how genes move throughout the population. Here's Jordan. This paper was an effort that we undertook to get a sense of how pollen is being moved around between individuals of this palm tree species. And the palm tree is a big canopy-level species, uh, up to 40 or 50 metres high, and pollen is moved around by insects, mainly beetles and bees. And both from a descriptive perspective and also to give us a sense of how um, trends like deforestation and habitat alteration may be affecting patterns of gene flow in this palm species, we wanted to just get a basic estimate of how um, pollen is being moved in terms of the distances that it's being moved and how many different source trees are represented um, among the pollen that's arriving at, at one focal maternal tree. And these trees are 40 to 50 metres tall, you say. Presumably the pollination events occur at the top of those trees. That sounds like you must have had a bit of a job getting your samples. Yes, that's one of the many uh, logistical challenges involved with this work. But we used a slingshot to uh, shoot these rocks up to these infrutescences, which hold several hundred fruits or several thousand fruits and then they would come raining down on our heads and we would collect a few dozen of them and grow them up in in nursery beds that we had and that's how we would obtain the genetic samples needed to um, determine the patterns of pollen movement. Now before we go into the nitty-gritty of what you found in this paper I think I need a bit of basic revision on, on palm tree biology so there's pollen and there are also seeds how do they both sort of interact? Well, um, this species, as we found out, is almost entirely outcrossing, which means that in order to produce a fruit, um, a, a parental tree needs to obtain pollen from another source tree. And when the pollen arrives um, at a female flower and germination takes place, that 
leads to a process which results in a seed being formed, which is, you know, the diploid um, offspring of the source tree from which the pollen came and the tree where the, where the embryo um, was located. Um, so what we do is we collect a genetic sample from the maternal source tree from which we collected the seeds. And then we obtain information on the microsatellite genotypes of the maternal source tree and also of the germinated seedling, one half of whose DNA is from the maternal source tree. And then we're basically able to subtract out that maternal contribution to the seedling's genotype. And what we're left with is the paternal contribution to the, um, to the seedling's genotype. So then what we do is, we, because we've sampled all the trees in a large area of, of larger than one kilometer squared, um, we are able to um, make inferences as to which individual tree um, that pollen came from. Right, and from that, I guess you get, you know, you get these distances from how far these paternal trees are, are spreading their genes through the population. That's exactly right. That gives us information on the um, distances that pollen has moved, and it also gives us information on um, the, the heterogeneity or the, or the diversity of pollen sources that are arriving at individual maternal trees. Okay, so let's talk about some of the results that you got. Um, did you have any assumptions beforehand? Did you think a, a tree would mate with the nearest tree to it, or what, what were your presumptions beforehand? A number of studies have been done looking at pollen movement, but the majority of those studies, and this is especially true for the earliest generations of studies, were done in largely in trees that are from the temperate zone and that are pollinated by wind dispersal, for instance, um, oaks, and pine trees. And we were very interested to do this study because palm trees, first of all, they're this particular species is a tropical rainforest species, and also it's insect pollinated. So we wanted to see if the patterns that we observed in this species um, matched up well with those obtained for temperate wind pollinated counterparts. And there's a, a general pattern that's emerged for the temperate um, wind-pollinated tree species, which is uh, what's called a strongly leptocurtic pattern of pollen movement, which means that the vast majority of pollination events um, occur over very short distances. As that distance increases, uh, the number of events that are observed drops off very rapidly in sort of an exponentially decaying function. What we found was actually something that was dramatically different from that. What we found was something that much more um, approximated a bell-shaped distribution with the majority of pollination events taking place at intermediate distances between 200 and 400 meters. And was it one, was it one paternal tree for one maternal tree? No, we found pretty good levels of pollen diversity uh, in the sense that we found... Uh, about 10 pollen sources represented in each maternal tree, depending on which metric you use to look at that. So the pollen is definitely getting moved around, and it's, it's getting moved around uh, relatively large distances by these very small um, bees and beetles, which serve as the pollinating uh, agents for this species. And why do you think the pollen is, is traveling these sort of significant distances? Why would a pollinator not travel to the next tree? Well, that's a, that's a good question. We propose, and again, this needs further testing to, um, to definitively show it, but we believe that it's likely that the fact that only a few individuals are in, in flower at any one time is what's determining 
the pollination results that we obtained. And more specifically, we don't find a preponderance of short-distance events because oftentimes the closest tree or the several trees that are closest to an individual in flower are not in flower synchronously with that individual. And as a result, for pollination to occur, the pollen has to move longer distances. Now, this study took place in a tropical rainforest in northwestern Ecuador, um, and, and people are often concerned about habitat degradation and, and whatnot in these areas. What lessons can we draw from this study, then, in the kind of conservation effort of these ecosystems? It's certainly the case that, that habitat fragmentation and degradation um, is affecting these biotic processes, such as pollination, which underlie smooth and healthy functioning for these ecosystems. It's been found in other studies that fragmentation can sometimes actually lead to increases in the distance that pollination is moved precisely because of the reasons that we talked about before, i.e. the the nearest tree. If the nearest tree is um, a longer distance away, then those will be the the distances that are recorded if pollination does, does occur. But at some point, you reach a threshold at which um, pollination is simply not going to be occurring anymore. And when that happens, we expect to see um, a real shutdown in terms of fruit production, or when fruit production does occur, a dramatic reduction in the diversity of pollen sources that are arriving at these trees. And that's expected to adversely affect um, these populations in, in, in a number of of ways, both in terms of dramatic short-term reductions in fruit production and also in terms of longer-term ability to adapt to changing conditions, such as changing climatic conditions, etc. And we mentioned there at the beginning um, the different angle to take on this, which is seed dispersal. How do they compare pollination and seed dispersal? Well, that's a great question. In, in terms of... Um, There's one important and obvious difference, just generally speaking, between pollen and seed movement, which is that pollen is moving a haploid genotype just from the paternal source tree, whereas seed dispersal is moving a a diploid um, offspring of of both the maternal and and paternal source trees. Um, And we were really interested to compare the results that we obtained from this study in pollen with the broader context of seed movement at this same study site. In this study site in northwest Ecuador, the main seed dispersal agent is a large um, endangered species of bird called the long-waddled umbrella bird. And our work has shown that surprisingly, it appears that these are somewhat surprisingly, depending on who you ask, it it appears that these insects are moving uh, the pollen longer distances than the birds are, despite the birds being several thousand times larger than the insects. Um, so the insects are, are contributing in very important ways to, um, to seed movement. However, the pools of seeds that these umbrella birds generate um, are actually more diverse. They represent more source trees um, than do the, the arriving pollen loads at, at maternal source trees. So there's interesting and complex contributions of both pollen movement and seed movement to uh, gene flow and genetic structure in this particular pollen species, and we're very excited about continuing to unravel these these questions moving forward. And following on this theme of conservation and regeneration, one of your co-authors on the paper is actually a local from this forest. That's exactly right. Uh, Fernando Castillo is a co-author on. 
Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Life is full of awesome what-ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at UH1.com this paper because he contributed in substantive ways to the collection of data in the field and the, uh, certainly the design of the study and interpretation of results. And Fernando's one of several local residents who work full-time on this project as researchers and also as advocates for conservation in this zone, um, providing information on the results of our studies to their own and to other local communities in an effort to increase awareness and appreciation for the biological riches that, that surround these local residents. So do you think there are any wider lessons about including local residents in uh, studies in, in these tropical areas? I, I do, yes. I think that it's especially in areas in developing countries where so much of the biological riches of this planet are stored it's often the case that there's relatively lax control um, in terms of environmental regulations. And as a result, in a de facto sense, it's the local residents whose attitudes and actions are going to determine the way that things that play out moving forward in terms of conservation of those resources. So um, I personally, and I know a lot of other people too working in the tropics, uh, believe that it's critical to engage local residents in the research efforts and to make certain that the results that we obtain um, are, are uh, provided to local residents in a way that they can understand and appreciate so that they feel like they're part of the research and conservation effort rather than feeling like they're excluded by it. That was Jordan Karubian of Tulane University, New Orleans. Jim Hamrick, a biologist at the University of Georgia, has written a news and commentary article for Heredity on this theme of tropical breeding systems. In it, he describes the paper you've just heard about as being superior to many of its predecessors in its thoroughness. But whilst these kinds of studies are useful, he says, it's hard to settle for a snapshot when it comes to reproductive events. He's calling for larger and longer-term studies of this kind. To set the ball rolling, I started off by asking him why we care about gene movements in these tropical systems in the first place. Well, I think the, the main reason is we need to get a better understanding of the spatial context in which individuals are exchanging genes. And that has a lot of ramifications. It uh, certainly has an effect on what we might expect to happen if a pristine forest is disturbed and becomes fragmented. Can we maintain the genetic diversity that is occurring in the natural populations so that if we uh, don't understand, say, the genetic, what we can call the genetic connectivity of individuals and populations, then uh, we don't know what kind of predictions we can make about the effects of disturbance. And why exactly is it that this field then uh, has sort of come into its own now? 
Well, it's a area that has had a pretty long history now. The very first parentage studies were done in in plants anyway, were done in 1984, 85 in that period. So we now have a record of over 25 years of of parentage analysis on a variety of different kinds of plants. One of the reasons that we now see more studies beginning to appear is that we have somewhat better technologies. We have more and better genetic markers which make our ability to do these parentage analyses somewhat easier. We get better abilities to determine who the parents are. Okay, so these parentage analyses have been going on for a few decades, you mentioned. What sort of general themes were coming out of those studies before this very comprehensive one? Well, the basic pattern, the, before these studies were, became available, there had been a paradigm that uh, gene movement in plants was relatively limited. Estimates based on watching pollinator movements and those kinds of studies, uh, the estimates were that uh, probably the longest distance pollen movement was something on the order of one to two kilometers and certainly not more than 10 kilometers. The parentage analysis right from the start showed that gene flow distances were much greater than had previously been uh, thought to occur, and that meant there was a lot more interchange of genes uh, among among these uh, among populations of plants. Okay, and so what exactly did you find so impressive about this current study then by Ottowell and and his colleagues? Well. It's one of the more thorough studies. Uh, that's partly because I believe he's, uh, they've, that group has been working on this site for several years, and they, they have previous papers there where they studied seed movement. And this paper is, is focusing on pollen movement. So they've done a, a lot of the groundwork, uh, mapping the trees, getting the genotypes of the trees, and now they're in a position to ask these uh, more sophisticated kinds of questions and to get really what I would think are pretty accurate estimates. The real problem, I think, uh, with these kinds of studies are that you're always limited in space. And I don't remember the exact numbers, but they found... A fairly high percentage of the pollen was coming from outside of their study area, and that means uh, you don't know how far that pollen is moving. It could be an individual just on the border, or it could be an individual another uh, kilometer away. So those are the limitations, but they did a very nice study of applying a variety of different kinds of approaches all which pretty much uh, supported the basic the basic patterns that they were seeing from their parentage analysis. Yeah, they certainly did sound limited by space. When I spoke to uh, Jordan Carubian, it sounded like very intensive sampling work. The way I say it is you, you can't genotype the whole world. There's always going to be a border somewhere. Yeah, sure. And you mentioned in your news and commentary that they're also limited um, by time. Yes. This is a major limitation of not only these parentage studies, but many studies of natural populations. We have a very poor 
understanding of how much some of these important, in this case, uh, genetic parameters, how much they vary from one reproductive event to another. And I think that's a major limitation. We have, some people refer to a snapshot of what is happening, and we don't have uh, the complete picture. As I said in that commentary, this is a lot of work just to get one year's worth of data and to get manpower and the time and particularly the funding to do it over a significant amount of time, and I would say a significant amount of time is certainly certainly a minimum of five reproductive events. And perhaps since a lot of things that happen are probably somewhat episodic, like El Nino years or La Nina years where the weather may have or climate may have a lot of effect on, on reproductive what's happening uh, in the populations. Okay, so obviously it's going to be very hard work and resource intensive. But you're advocating um, you're, you're advocating these long term studies, aren't you? Yes, and there are examples, some of which I mentioned in the commentary, that have paid off. People have have followed certain populations of an organism over oh fifty or sixty years, perhaps in their whole careers, in, in some cases, and. Some of those results are just beginning to pay off now, especially in the context of global climate change. You now can say, this is the way it used to be, and now this is the way it's, that things are changing. In the uh, context of uh, tropical biology, one of the most important things that's happened in tropical biology is establishment and monitoring of large uh, plots typically 50-hectare plot, the first of which was established at Barra, Colorado Island in Panama by Steve Hobel and Robin Foster. Uh, that plot is constantly generating new and interesting data, and I would say that the payoffs uh, are coming now. That was established, I believe, in 1980. And the payoffs, there have been more payoffs in the last decade than uh, new insights, new understandings in the last decade than there were in the first two decades. Do you think researchers will have to fight a very hard battle then to secure funding for these long-term studies of gene flow? Where it works best is if you have some institutions, institutional support. Uh, going back every, say, every five years to a granting agency, is difficult because the granting agencies have a, as their compelling principle, following the novel science. And so they have a hard time funding uh, what are basically long-term monitoring projects. So where these kind of projects have been successful, it's either been done on... uh, just individuals just doing it, deciding that's what they were going to spend their summers doing, perhaps, and and or having uh, relatively stable institutions willing to provide some of the support for that, especially for their long-term monitoring. And that's your lot for this week's Heredity podcast. We'll be back with the October show, as always, at the end of the month. If you'd like to get in touch, you can reach us at hereditypodcast at gmail.com. See you next month.
Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm. 